And I'm Fitz. And this is Knock Once for Yes. It's suddenly very autumnal here. The mornings have been misty, the leaves are turning, and the nights are definitely drawing in. So what better time to settle in for a good ghost story? What have we got coming up on today's episode, Fitz? Coming up today, we have a cautionary tale on the paranormal radar. We've had an unexpected ghostly visitor at Coffee HQ. We've got lots of fantastic stories from our listeners and... Our latest paranormal postcards adventure takes us to a palace, or does it? (laughs) Indeed, we will find out very soon. Before we get started, we want to say a huge thank you to our latest patron, Andrew Benazi from Arizona, and I hope I didn't slaughter your surname. (laughs) Hopefully, Andrew, by the time this airs, you'll have received your very first actual real-life paranormal postcard from us. And next week, I will be doing a bit more posting of goodies to our lovely patrons, so keep an eye out for those. Although, bear in mind, some of them do have to cross the Atlantic, so please be patient. As well as earning our eternal gratitude for becoming our patron, Andrew's also sent in a rather thrilling story, which we'll be getting to shortly. It's a good one. But first, for today's Paranormal Radar, we're heading to Wales. We are indeed. Are you sitting comfortably? I am. Are you prepared to be forgiving of some terrible Welsh pronunciation? I am. I can't guarantee that the people of Wales will be. (laughs) Then I will begin. Deep in the beautiful Welsh countryside amidst the Cambrian Mountains, nestled at the base of the valley, lies the historic village of Abbey Cumhir. The name of the village derives from the Cistercian Monastery built there in the year 1143, and translates as Abbey in the Long Valley. It was once a grand building, founded by Welsh Prince Cadwallon ap Madoc. It was the largest abbey in Wales, but the years have taken their toll. Between uprisings, arson by English soldiers, the dissolution of the monasteries and the English Civil War, all that remains now are ruins, and the memorial stone of Llewellyn ap Griffith, or, as he's sometimes known, Llewellyn the Last. Llewellyn ap Griffith was the last native prince of Wales who rebelled against King Edward of England, but was killed in battle in 1282. He was a wanted man for his rebellion, so when he was slain, the English took his head to display around the towns and villages. But his body, it said, was buried at Abbey Cumhir, and for centuries there have been tales of Llewellyn's headless ghost haunting the abbey. But it seems that the prince's powers may have been further reaching than anybody thought. Earlier this month, the Abbey Cumhir Heritage Trust received a mysterious package in the mail. In the envelope was a small piece of stone and a card that read... I am so sorry for taking, borrowing, stealing this piece of the old Abbey Cumhir. I've been an avid follower of the Welsh kings and their history, so I I took this rock. Ever since, I have had the most awful bad luck, as if Llewellyn himself was angry with me, so I'm sending it back. I will not leave my name and address, just a heartfelt sorry from an Australian fan. (laughs) (laughs) 
I really want to know what on earth happened to this chap that he felt that he had to send it back. I'd well, I'm sorry, but what did he expect? He stole a bit of the abbey. <laughs> I kind of think that was a bit deserved. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the the first thought I had was that you know the guilt was playing on his mind and he was attributing things to it, but you know to. To pay postage to send a rock <laughs> from Australia. And a, an apology note as well. Yeah, you, you've got to have something that really sort of resonated with you to, to make you need to do that. Well, it's not the first time I've heard of this happening, I've got to say. Um, I have had, it wasn't me personally, but a family member did a similar thing. They did take something from a heritage site that they should not have done. Oh, Yes, and um, we were staying in a holiday cottage at the time that had been fine up until that point. And then all of a sudden there was footsteps in the night and there was the sounds of dragging furniture when there was nobody upstairs and awful sounds coming in from outside in the middle of the... It was just... Awful it, sounds? What What awful sounds? Like a wailing sound. It just... I mean, Ooh. it could have been an animal, but with everything else... It just sort of, it really sort of exacerbated the, the situation. But there was definitely, there were sounds going on in the house that had not been there before. So whether it was something, you know, there was something already in the house and bringing this item in had kicked it off, or whether it was just down to the item itself. But yeah, they should not have taken it, basically. <laughs> I, I made them take it back and then it was fine. Oh, Mm. So I have had personal experience of this. You should not be... Well, you shouldn't be taking stones from abbeys anyway, no. to be honest. Please, if you visit a historical site, be respectful and don't nick bits of the wall. Indeed. What's the old adage? Um, leave nothing but footprints, That's take nothing it. but pictures. Leave no trace. Yes, absolutely. It, please enjoy these historical sites, but don't be nicking bits of the masonry. Now, I believe there was a response from the Heritage Trust, but before we get into that, there was just one other point that yeah. I wanted to make. I love the fact that, you know, these Welsh names, a lot of them can be quite long, as we know, the mm -hmm. famous one that I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce. But I love the fact that they've got the sort of descriptive Abbey of the Long Valley. Yes, but it's lovely, this isn't is it? Wales, which is full of them. <laughs> so it's a bit like going the Abbey that's in that place, you know, over there. <laughs> Well, yes, but I, I, it's still a nice romantic kind of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it brings up a certain image, doesn't it? I think it's rather lovely. But yes, you're right. There was a response from the Heritage Trust. And in fact, a member of the Abbey Coombe Heritage Trust had tried to track down the person that returned the stone. Um, and they mentioned that the owner of the Abbey's estate between 1824 and 1837 emigrated to Australia and became the second mayor of Adelaide. So I wonder if there were, wondering if there were a relative of this person. Mm, That's pretty interesting. interesting. Uh, possibly if that they've got a big interest in the historical Welsh kings, maybe exactly. it's sort of through to a family connection. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Maybe that's why he took it. Maybe it was, mm. you know, take this bit with you back to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd kind of think that the Heritage Trust would be pretty furious about this, but they're they were quite kind, really. Um, the statement said, The unknown sender is clearly contrite and more than anything doesn't want to harm the existing remains of the Abbey. We were very impressed that someone had taken the power of the Abbey stone so seriously and that they believed that Prince Llewellyn, the last Prince of Wales who is buried in the Abbey, had a moral influence over them. We do hope that returning the stone has brought better luck to the sender. In fact, 
we wish him or her the very best in all possible ways and send our thanks for the stone. Isn't that lovely? What yes, a lovely that was response. A, you know, a, I think that was a perfectly tempered response. It was. But having said that, they have put the stone with the apology note on display in the exhibition room as a dire warning to other would-be thieves. And who can blame them? <laughs> Beware, we will send ghosts after you if you demolish the heritage site. If you steal these stones, you will be haunted by the last Prince of Wales. <laughs> and um, I would just like to say a absolutely massive thank you to the wonderful fog of the Gamma Radio podcast who sent me a beautiful recording of all these Welsh words because without that I wouldn't have had a hope of even trying to pronounce them. So thank you so much, Fog, and I really hope I didn't slaughter them too badly. So if a comedy radio show set in a post-apocalyptic UK wasteland sounds like your cup of tea, please do pop over to the Gamma Radio podcast and give them a listen. I'll be putting a link to that in the description and having seen the words and heard the pronunciation, I can honestly say that I wouldn't have had a chance no. either. They, they don't sound anything like they look. Not a hope, it's just a jumble <laughs> of consonants. And now it's time for our first listener story of the episode and this is from Andrew and it regards the Baker Hotel. At the time of this story, I was a photojournalist in Dallas-Fort Worth at one of the TV stations. One of my favourite things to do was shoot video essays of old buildings. I've always been drawn to classical architecture and in North Texas there's not a lot of it. The Baker is an hour and a half west of Fort Worth in the city of Mineral Wells. While covering news stories out that way, I was fascinated by the white elephant sitting in the small Texas town. It literally looms over the mineral wells. 14 stories tall, with 450 rooms in a slight V-shape, with a 35-foot tower and spooky but beautiful Spanish colonial architecture. The hotel was opened in 1929 to take advantage of the natural health craze during that part of the century, and Mineral Wells Walter, with its small amount of lithium, drew people from around the world, many guests staying months at a time. All the A-list movie stars of the 1930s through the 60s stayed at the Baker. Bonnie and Clyde were said to have had their last steak dinner at the Baker before leaving for their final shootout in Louisiana. The Baker closed for good in 1972, and like many old abandoned buildings, there are many tales that surround them, some true, some not. The Baker is no different. I would encourage people to look up more for themselves. After contacting the property manager and asking for permission to do the video essay, I went out and was not disappointed. I interviewed some people that worked there in its heyday. The video turned out great. My goal was history and architecture, not to do a ghost story. The ghost story happened a couple of years later. It does seem some old buildings lure people to them. The baker drew me in. I became good friends with the building manager and the locals that gave tours on the weekends. Before I knew it, I was doing tours every Saturday. This lasted for two and a half years. It was a blast taking people around the hotel. Many locals on the tours had their own stories about the hotel and its prime. Most, though, had never been inside. It catered to the elite. I have been from the top to bottom of the hotel, 
and I never saw or heard a thing. If I did, I would not have come back. There were times when I felt like there were spirits around, but they seemed to like me. They knew I was only there to help. I can say there were times on some of the floors not used for the tours that I felt like I was almost walking through a crowd, but nothing ever tried to show itself or scare me. It would have been quite easy. It's impossible to get out of the hotel quickly from the upper floors. The only exits are an old hand crank elevator and the dangerous cramped fire stairs. During the holiday season and my final few months at the hotel, it was decided that the maintenance man and I would hang Christmas lights on the exterior of the building, from the top to the bottom. It was quite an undertaking for two people, but we did it. I ended up on floors I had never been before, securing lights to the window frames. It was creepy, but nothing strange happened. I'm sure I muttered a few times into thin air that I was just working, I'd be gone soon. The lights went up without a hitch and the hotel looked amazing. For the first time in 30 years, the baker was lit for Christmas. Up to that point, I had not been at the hotel at night. It was different at night to be sure. At that time, the grand lobby was still in decent shape. With the darkness and chandeliers lit, all the dust and water damage faded away. You had the feeling, at any moment, a bell captain would tap you on the shoulder and politely offer to take your bags. I was proud of the Christmas lights and wanted to show them off to a girlfriend I'd only been dating for a couple of weeks. I didn't know her that well, but I found out much more about her after a trip to the hotel. So on a cold December night, Emily and I arrived at the baker. I'll confess I was nervous about being in the hotel at night, but as the man, I put those fears aside. As long as I had a flashlight, I'd be okay. The hotel looked amazing as we got into town. You could see the lights from miles away. I was excited to show her the place. It was going to be a good night. My fellow tour guides had turned on the lobby lights for me earlier in the evening to make it easier to navigate. The breaker boxes were in a room off the lobby I did not like. I couldn't tell you why, it just felt wrong. There we were, the baker lobby at night and the whole place to ourselves. I showed Emily around the lobby. It's quite beautiful with heavy Spanish iron chandeliers and eerie gothic plaster faces looking down from the pillars. She seemed interested, if not a little distracted. I could understand, but I was staying strong. I figured if I got nervous, she would freak out. After the lobby tour was completed, I ushered her to the original hand crank elevators, art deco doors and all, headed to the top floor for a tour of the cloud room with windows that overlook the city and then onto the tower. We stepped in. I moved to my left to operate the crank. As I looked up, I noticed that she was wedged in the corner diagonal to me, as far away as she could get. I thought this was strange. She was a good six feet from me. She looked uncomfortable, but I carried on. I have a tendency to overlook the obvious. I left the doors open so I could see which floors we were passing. Each is marked on the concrete wall as you go by. Floor after floor sped by. I slowed to the top floor. My friend stayed in the corner and said nothing. 
All the other floors were marked with numbers in white paint. Oddly, the top floor said cloud room in red. Trying to be funny, I said, red rum. I found out later she heard murder. Emily had never seen The Shining. She must have thought I was nuts. So there she was, 14 floors up, in a dark, abandoned hotel with someone saying murder. Fun. We got out of the elevator and I showed her around the cloud room. She stuck very close to me. I could tell at that point she was freaked out, but I was determined to show her the tower which is accessed on that floor. I didn't know at that time that getting back in the elevator was the best thing to do. She knew. I would find that out later. After a short look around the cloud room, we headed behind the elevators to a dark hallway that led to the tower access. I thought the tower would be romantic. Remember what I said about missing the obvious? The air was tense at this point, but I had not had anything happen that would turn me back. Honestly, if I thought something was up, I would have been out of there. I just thought she was nervous about being in the spooky building, but a man carries on, right? With a flashlight lighting the way, we made the turn for the hallway to the tower. She was behind me. Around that point, I was catching on that something was definitely up. Genius, huh? About halfway down the hallway, she literally jumped on my back, damn near knocking me over. Scared the hell out of me. I asked her what was wrong. She only said that she heard something behind us. Being only steps away from the stairs to the tower, I carried on. I know, what is wrong with me? The poor girl. But I wanted to get to the top and show her the 35-foot windows that overlook the city, and I must admit I wanted to see them at night too. The tower is super creepy even during the day, so you can only imagine what it's like at night. The lower portion of the tower houses the old-fashioned original motors for the elevator and a spooky water tank. In the middle, a spiral staircase leads up to the top of the tower. Well, we didn't quite make it all the way up. Emily stopped about halfway, only steps away from our destination. I could tell she was ready to get the hell out. There was nothing romantic about any of this. I didn't press on moving forward we made our way back to the elevator. Again, she pressed herself diagonally from me into the corner of the elevator. It seemed even stranger this time since she was stuck to me during the entire time on the top floor and tower. We made it back to the lobby, no problem. It was a relief to be away from the darkness of the upper floor and have an exit in sight. Back in the light of the lobby, I could tell she was ready to get out of there. Both of us laughed a little uncomfortably. She wanted to step outside and we sat on the steps, both relieved to be in the fresh air. I asked her if she was okay, and this is what Emily told me what she saw and heard. When we first went into the elevator, she saw three people standing in the middle, two women and a man, dressed in clothes from the 30s or 40s. They were as real as you or me. That's why she was pressed into a corner. She told me they were caretakers of the hotel and that they knew me and were curious about why I was at the hotel so late at night. She said they were not there to be harmful, but from her perspective, they must have been frightening. 
With all that said, we can assume that this girl was seriously empathic. Like I said earlier, I didn't know her that well. Wow, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, but it fit with what I saw in her actions. She told me when we were in the hallway to the tower and jumped on my back, she heard a sound like feet dragging along the concrete floor, like someone was floating in the air with the toes of their shoes just touching the floor. Creepy, right? She said that the caretakers followed us the entire time, back onto the elevator into the lobby. As we sat outside in the cold air with the lobby in sight through the windows, I asked her if they were still there. She looked over her shoulder and said they were gone. I've got to tell you, my hair was standing up all the way back to Dallas-Fort Worth. We stopped dating soon after our little tour to Mineral Wells. I don't think the ghosts had anything to do with it. It was probably the red rum comment. You never know. I can't believe he just blurted out red rum. <laughs> and also, I can't believe she's never seen The Shining. To be honest, even if you've never seen The Shining, someone, when you're obviously freaked out, turning around to you and going, murder, because she heard murder. <laughs> yeah. Bad enough on its own. <laughs> it is. Especially when you're crammed into the corner of an elevator because you can see ghosts in between you and the elevator doors. I can't, well, I'd, I'd like to think I would have just said something, but I suppose... If you don't know somebody that well, you can't just be blurting out, by the way, I can see dead people. Yeah, I see dead people. <laughs> but then I would, because that's just me. <laughs> what would you do, though, if you were in a really freaky place and the person that was with you that up until that point seemed fairly normal just turned around to you and went, murder? <laughs> I don't think I'd have clung to him quite as hard as she did later on in the story. Well, I don't know, because what she was hearing upstairs with the feet dragging across oh. the concrete... oh. No, I'd have clung to any living being at that point. <laughs> Crikey. I mean, oh, it sounds like such an amazing building. I mean, that is something that I would love to see. It sounds fantastic. You can you can understand how he was sort of sucked in by it and drawn to it. Oh, it's a beautiful building. I had a look at the video I say he'd yeah. done. Uh, he sent me the I link. I have to see and that. It is a beautiful, beautiful building. I'd love to go and visit and have a look myself. I'd love to see it lit up for Christmas as well. That sounds amazing. Uh, he did say that it's not quite... In as good condition as when no. he was there, which is a shame. Oh, and a shame. I'd love to go. I the uh, was it the cloud room? Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. I would so love to go and see that. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to see it after dark though. Yeah, I think that would be strictly daytime visits. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's funny you. I've heard of this before. People being really attracted to a certain building and being really sucked into it. Like he mentions, it kind of gripped him somehow yeah and it seems I'm, from what she was saying of the things that were there as well they were very much you know we don't mind you being here it's yeah. fine we're just interested in what you're doing yeah he it sounded like he was kind of whatever was there has sort of accepted him into the into its fold if you if you know what i mean yeah it's something i've heard of a few times before it's very interesting i'd love to sort of go and find out more and if there was some way of communicating with them to sort of see what it was about him that they were interested in. Well, and that's what Emily said at the end as well, was that they were just interested to see what he was doing there after hours because the, they were clearly used to him being there in the daytime and they were just like, oh, hey, what are you yeah. doing here? It's, it's dark. <laughs> and that is interesting as well, actually, because it's not something you hear of very often that, oh, I don't know what the word, you know, ghost spirits, what have you, mm. are aware of 
the time or the passage of time oh, yeah. you know it seems a lot you know obviously you've got things that sort of repeat their actions and the residual they're, time. they're obviously not aware of what's going on and you've got others that do sort of communicate with people but i don't think i've ever heard before of them being aware of what time it was yeah and they clearly were and they clearly were it's like oh you're normally here at three o'clock Andrew. what are you <laughs> doing here at seven putting in extra hours <laughs> But yeah, fantastic building. I would love to go. And what a wonderful story. Thank you, Andrew. I was at, I was stuck to my chair when I was reading that. Oh, That's yeah. brilliant. Thank you so much. Okay, we go now to Utah, where we have an amazing story from Megan and... A bonus. Awesome bonus. The EVP that she refers to in the story, she also sent us a copy of that. So we're playing that after the story. Enjoy. For three summers, I worked for a summer camp in Utah as one of their camp counsellors. The camp was located in a park, specifically in what I believe was an old caretaker's cottage. It was a decent-sized building with a kitchen, two large rooms, a smaller office and two bathrooms. And then there was the basement. To say it was creepy is a bit of an understatement. To get down into it, you first had to unlock and lift open a heavy padlocked grate that covered the stairs. Once you were able to go down, you had to carefully avoid numerous spiderwebs to turn on the lights and manoeuvre down a narrow hallway into the main room, which had a table and some chairs. It was in this room that we... The kids I worked with and myself had our experience. As part of my job, I had to plan classes that would last about a month for the kids to enjoy. During my third summer, I decided to have a class where I would take the kids ghost hunting, since I knew many of them enjoyed learning about the paranormal. I myself am a believer in ghosts, and thought it would be a great way to give ghost hunting a try myself, as I'd never done it before. Adding to the fun was the fact that the kids already believed the building was haunted by a ghost they called Mr Fairmont, a belief the staff happily encouraged in the name of summer fun. On our second day of ghost hunting, I took the kids down into the basement and we all arranged the chairs in a circle in the main room. We took out my cell phone, which we used to try and record EVPs, and turned off all the lights. Then we began asking questions. Most of the questions were the standard ones you see on the ghost shows, such as, is there anyone here? And can you tell us your name? The kids especially loved asking the ghost to knock once for yes, twice for no. Since we were in the dark, I always made sure to tap my foot against my chair, once or twice depending on the response. I did this for two reasons. The first was I knew some of the younger kids were afraid of the possibility of running into a malevolent entity, and I wanted the ghost to let them know it was nice when asked. The second and more important reason 
was that I wanted all the kids to be able to go home and tell their parents they'd had a conversation with a real ghost, even if it was just through knocks. After about ten minutes of asking questions, we decided to go back and listen to what we had recorded. As expected, there were the knocks that I'd fabricated, which I was pleased to see the kids get excited over. Then, a couple of minutes in, I heard something more distinct, and not something that I had done. "'Wait,' I said, pressing the pause button on the recorder. "'Did you guys hear that?' The kids looked at me and told me they hadn't. Quickly, I rewound to just a few seconds before. It was so quiet in the room now that when the noise came up the second time, we all heard it. "'Is that a voice?' one of the kids asked. "'I think it is,' I told them, rewinding it once again. We listened to it a third time, becoming even more excited. I swear, we listened to that recording at least five times. This is what we heard. One of the younger girls, whose voice was rather high-pitched, asked the entity, "'Are you friendly?' There are a few seconds of silence, and then you can hear a deep, gravelly male voice say, I am, or possibly, I'm here. We had a lot of debate about that. Of course, we were all thrilled and eagerly listened to the rest of the tape to see if we could hear the voice again. Unfortunately, that was the only time we seemed to catch it. The kids kept trying to make contact with the entity they now firmly believed was Mr Fairmont. At the end of the class, we ran up from the basement into the building and told everyone excitedly that we'd found a ghost. Now I'm sure you're wondering if it could have just been one of the kids playing a prank on the others. I thought the same thing when I first heard it. However, the more I listened to the voice the more certain I am that it wasn't one of them. Like I said, this happened in my third year of working at the camp, and I've gotten to know the kids' voices fairly well. There was only one kid, a boy who was 12 at the time, who possibly could have made it, and I'm certain his voice wasn't deep enough to be the one we heard. The voice we heard sounded like it had come from an 80-year-old man who smoked a pack a day. Besides, I didn't hear anything while we were recording, and I think if it was one of the kids, I would have heard them, even if they were being quiet. A few months later, I was hanging out with a friend who considers herself sensitive. When I mentioned the EVP to her, she asked to hear it. After listening, she told me that she had heard the voice too and was certain it was not one of the kids. In fact, she said, the voice gave her the image of an older man who had once lived where the park now sits. To be honest, I'm not sure if I believe everything about her impression, but it was nice to hear that someone else thought it was legitimate rather than just a trick of sound. In the end... I like to believe that the voice was just a spirit who wanted to let the kids know he was there and in response to the girl's question, just a friendly spirit 
saying hello. Thank you so much, Megan, for that story. We don't really tend to have sort of summer camps here in the UK, but no. even if they did, I can't imagine that they would have ghost hunting as one of the options. But um, how cool would that be, though? If they did, I would have been on that class. Yeah, I would have signed up for summer <laughs> camp if included ghost hunting. Well, I think it was quite sweet, though, that she wanted to make sure the ghosts came across as friendly so the kids weren't too scared. And we did particularly enjoy the kids asking the ghost to knock once for yes and twice for no. Um, but I'm sure you're desperate to hear the EVP. So here is that. Now, to start with, you will hear one of the kids ask a question and then something responds. You'll hear the full clip first and then three repeats of the EVP on its own. Are you friendly? <coughs> okay, now I definitely heard something. I know Megan thinks that it said either I am or I'm here. I'm definitely hearing the here yeah, more I, than the am sound. I definitely heard here or here as it yeah. was. Um, we had to look at the audio a bit closer under analysis and we found that what I think they believe is the I'm or I am uh, was under a cough mm. and it appears to be more of an impact sound than speech. It starts immediately and at very high volume, yeah. which leads me to believe that it's an impact because with speech, even when you're shouting, there's a very slight build-up to it, whereas this is just... It's a, it's a straight line at high volume immediately on the waveform. It's very clear. Yeah, this was some sort of an impact from the look of it, but the, the here is... Well, it very much looks like a voice waveform. Yeah, it, it's very clearly speech. Mm-hmm. And when we we sort of had a bit of experimentation around it to have yeah. a fiddle to see if we could recreate it, and and Lil and I both sort of into the microphone went here, yeah. <laughs> analysed it and played with it as you do, and we found that the voice on the EVP was all very low frequency. Yeah, I mean basically I tried um, doing a whispery here in my own voice, which, as you would expect, being a girl, having a girl's voice, came out very much in the mid-range. Then I tried to do a deep voice, and to be honest, it didn't make that much difference. It, there was a lot more in the low range, but there was definitely, all the clarity was still in the mid-range. And then Fitz had a go, which, as you would expect, would be a little bit deeper still, being a man having a fairly deep voice. But it didn't seem to have as low a frequency as the EVP. No, um, we tried basically playing with the EQ and cutting out various frequencies and on mine we could get lower than Lil's mm -hmm. and it was still clear but it was much more muddy than the EVP. The EVP we cut off you know, all the top, top end and it was still clear. Yeah the whole thing was still there even with no top end at all. Um, we may be getting a little bit technical here but basically what we think is, I mean, we're not professional audiologists, um, 
But from what we could see, I don't think it could have been a child that made that noise. No, the child's voice at the start we played around with. And again, while you could understand them with mostly sort of low and mids. It sounded like it was coming from the bottom of a bucket. Yeah, all the clarity was in very high end. So it's, you know, it's definitely a deeper voice than a child. And we believe the majority of women. I mean, Lil's got quite a deep voice for a woman. Exactly. And even that was a lot more mid-range than this, even though to the ear they were pretty much identical. Mm, so bearing in mind that the only occupants of the room were children under 12 and Megan herself, maybe Mr Fairmont did in fact make an appearance to just let you know that he was still there. Thank you again to Megan for sending in that awesome story and especially the EVP, which we were so excited to hear. Oh, we were. We love getting your stories and it really is one of the best ways you can support us because your stories are at the very heart of our show. So if you've had a spooky experience and you'd like to share it with us, please do get in touch at knockonceyes.com. If, like Megan, you have an EVP to share, we'd love to hear that as well. You can just attach that to an email and send that in to us. Or alternatively, if you'd like to record your own story, you can do that and we can play you on the show. Moving on now, we promised you an update on the spooky goings-on at Coffee HQ. And boy, do we have an update for you. Yeah, if you remember back in the spring, we all of a sudden had a flurry of unusual slash paranormal unexplained certainly activity that seemed to have come out of nowhere really because we don't have a history of anything happening in this house and like many of these cases it sort of flared up and then we've just had nothing for months um, which has been quite nice really but we were sort of almost kind of waiting for it to start up again and the other day I think it just may have done I was first thing in the morning and I was getting ready for work and I heard downstairs on our front door somebody knocking, well, hammering with a fist, really. They weren't using the door knocker. It was definitely a fist on the door. Three loud, sharp knocks. And it, well, it freaked me out. I, I was just absolutely shaking because nobody, this was 10 past six in the morning. I checked the time after it had happened because it just occurred to me to do so. And nobody knocks on your door at 10 past six in the morning for anything good. So I was scared because I thought something had like, happened to one of the cats or something. Um, so I flew to the door and there was just nobody. There was nothing there. There was nobody there. The cats, though, were all basically gathered round, standing at attention. They'd, they'd heard it. It wasn't just something I had heard. You could see that they were disturbed in the way that they are when somebody unexpectedly bangs very loudly on the door. Mm. They were ill at ease, shall we say. Um, but there was just nothing. There was nobody in the street. I mean, we live in a fairly sleepy little town. There's not much going on at 10 past six in the morning. And from our doorway, you can see both both ways to the ends of the street. Yeah. And I, I honestly, it doesn't, our house isn't that big. It doesn't take very long to open the front door. Um, there's not far to get to it. I just don't think that anybody could have knocked and then disappeared like the whole length of the street before I'd got there. Yeah. I'm pretty, unless they were like Usain Bolt. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would have seen somebody ducking around a corner. I mean, there's nowhere to hide. It's just an open street. Um 
people we don't really have driveways it's just you know people's front doors are, are street on yeah they, we've got a driveway but ours is the only one for quite a way down the street and, and it's open there's it, nothing to hide yeah behind. it's like picket fencing in between yeah. us and the next door so it's not like anyone can hide behind it you know you'd see through the fence yeah and um, but the other thing that it really weirded me out and this is why i was so scared at the time was that you know the sounds of your own house um, obviously, I know it wasn't anybody next door because you you are used to what that sounds like. I know that it was very much on our front door. Um, and I know that it wasn't with the knocker because we don't have a doorbell. We just have a, a door knocker. And obviously, I know very well what that sounds like. And it was not that. It was somebody banging with their fist, um, which really scared me because that's the sort of thing that somebody does in an urgent situation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You don't if it if it's not an urgent thing, you wouldn't be banging with your fist on the door. And it was so loud. It really did freak me out. And then to just for there to be nobody in sight. I would love to be able to back up this story, but unfortunately, <laughs> me being me, I slept through the entire thing. Fits did not stir at all. But that is not unusual. <laughs> um but yeah, like I said, the cats knew something were going on. Um they were obviously freaked out um something had disturbed them they were all like i said standing to attention which sort of i don't know it was just a really strange experience we don't live in a busy area people don't just go around knocking on each other's doors i mean i i know i can't rule that out completely but it does sound very similar to what i heard in the bathroom do you know i literally hadn't put that together had you not tweaked no i hadn't no because that was three knocks it was no, it's, honestly, I hadn't put that together until just now. <laughs> I don't know why it didn't occur to me. Because, yeah, that was... That bom, was three bom. knocks. Yeah. Get out of the bathroom. <laughs> clearly it doesn't well, just mean get out of the bathroom. You're going to be late for work. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, d I don't really know what to make of that, but it did scare me. Again, like with the other experience, it didn't scare me at the time because I thought it was paranormal. I just It just scared me because I thought something real was happening. Well, we'll keep you posted if there are any further updates to mm -hmm. the bizarre goings-on at Coffee HQ. And we are about to launch into our paranormal postcard. But before that, we've just got one more listener's story. It was only after re-listening to your paranormal postcard of Bedfordshire that I got thinking again about my own paranormal experiences, or what I had assumed to be a lack of them. In your podcast, you actually refer to the uneasy feelings when walking around historic ruins, and although not visually experiencing anything unexplainable, there were undoubtedly other senses that had been tickled, which had you alarmed and at unease. I had not thought about it before, but in actual fact, upon hearing this again, it did reignite my deep memories, and more importantly, feelings. I had perhaps lazily assumed that paranormal experiences were limited to either seeing or hearing something strange, mysterious and out of place. However, as you said yourselves, it is perhaps the inner feelings which are the greater indicator of something not quite right in the world, and although these are senses which are not easily controlled or understood, and even less easy to verbalise, they are nevertheless possibly the more sensitive and far-reaching. To set the scene, I have to travel back in my mind to 1988 when my family was house hunting and we were viewing a number of properties around the Wellingborough area. As memory recalls, the third or fourth viewing at this particular time was at a reasonably large four-bedroom detached property on Northampton Road, 
And as with the other viewings so far, I had no particular expectations, and being a teenager, very limited interest at all really. It was a bright clear day with the warmth of spring, or possibly even summer, giving us all that kind of enhanced cheeriness which sunshine so often does. However, as soon as I had stepped foot inside the front door, I knew that this was not a house I could live in. Sometimes you can get a gut feeling very quickly as to whether you like something or not, and this can apply to anything from a sandwich to a spouse. But the feeling this particular house gave me went way beyond that. In my head, there was a demonic guttural voice yelling at me to get out, which was in stark contrast to the silent stillness of the building. There was nothing visually odd, no creepy furniture or dark nooks and crannies, no poor lighting creating awkward shadows, no hidden doors to cellar or attic, not even cobwebs to otherwise hint at anything remotely sinister, but to me, it was the very air within this place, the entire aura of the inside that had a density to it that I felt deep inside and which cried out to me as evil. Beyond that, my lasting memory of this experience was something even more simple and unexplainable. The paint on the walls. Perhaps it was nothing more than a dislike of the watery pastel blue on the walls, but just looking at it made my insides go all aflutter, and I had the urge of desperately wanting to leave. That colour has stuck in my mind even to this day, and there is still a basic association with evil wrongdoings to that horrible baby blue. At the time, this colour was in the main entrance hall of the house, which was quite large, open space, and looking up to the first floor landing, it was like the colour was moving towards me, bringing the walls in closer, and I could not escape that inner fear of something else being there, possibly even within the walls, behind that colour, trying to get out, trapped forever in it. What was that paint hiding? What had it been used to cover up? Maybe there were deeper stains which would not wash off from a past horror and that paint job was simply not enough to hide or erase the past. Far-reaching perhaps, but these were the thoughts in my head at the time and it was something which I'd never experienced before nor since, and why it sticks in my recollection so clearly as a feeling rather than a memory. I remember very little else about the house or any of the other rooms, but I think I very quickly switched off to looking around it properly, concentrating instead on leaving. I did comment to my parents at the time that I felt very uneasy there and would never in a million years consider it as a potential home. It was thankfully a view shared by us all. I never went back and tried to put it out of my mind, although it never did truly ever leave my thoughts. In summary, therefore, I assume that this would count as an experience, and that this inner sense of unsubstantiated unease or even fear is an indicator as much as sight or sound, and that there are forces beyond the easily tangible which we cannot rationalise. And that story comes to us from a listener that prefers to remain anonymous, but does assure us that they now live a safe distance from Northampton Road, Wellingborough. <laughs> I do think there is a lot to be said for how you feel immediately upon walking into a place, especially in this situation, because it doesn't sound like there was anything that would have been giving him that creepy vibe. 
you know, you said it was a bright, sunny day. It was sort of a, a happy, well, not happy occasion, but it wasn't a sinister occasion. There was no creepy lighting or shadows or cobwebs. So it doesn't sound like there's anything that would have invoked that sense of dread. No, I mean, we're not talking about a gothic mansion or the no. monster home. It's, you know, <laughs> it's just an average house. So there's there's nothing really I'd have thought that when he doesn't specify anything that jumps out at you. It's not like there's statues of Baphomet or anything <laughs> peeling off the walls. You know, it's just a, a, a normal suburban English house. But sometimes, as we both have experienced, um, you can just walk into this wall of atmosphere or something. Yeah, I mean, it varies. I mean, we, we've talked on various other episodes about sort of tingly feelings or sort of a pressure in your head, but there's only one other building I felt like just an unsubstantiated terror. And later, obviously, had things happen to me in that building. Mm. But I, kn- I know what he's talking about, that just overwhelming fear and need to escape. Yeah, and in fact, we had a story from a listener um, a little while ago with a very similar, just a, an all-pervading sense of dread and just no reason to it. Yeah, nothing actually happened, but just that sense of fear is enough to make you weak at the knees. Mm, and it must have made a really deep impression. Um, the the bit he said about the colour, this powder baby blue, still to this day, making him have that feeling, sort of that awful sort of feeling of dread is invoked by this colour. That's a really deeply resonating memory. Yeah, and I can barely remember the paint colours of a lot of the houses I've lived in for years, let alone one that I visited once, sort of, you know, a decade ago. But that's um, something that happens with, like, almost, you know, really traumatic experiences is that these fine details, these seemingly minor details are sort of burned into your memory almost. So it must have been a very strong feeling. Indeed. Well, thank you so much to our anonymous listener for that evocative story. And oddly enough, that sense of walking into a dense atmosphere is something I've experienced very recently indeed. In fact, on my latest Paranormal Postcards adventure to Apethorpe Palace, just on the border between Northamptonshire and Peterborough. Apethorpe Palace is a Grade 1 listed Jacobean stately home built in 1470 by Sir Guy Walston, under the patronage of King Edward IV. So it is a palace. (laughs) Well, I'm getting to that. According to Wikipedia, Apethorpe is pronounced Apthorpe, but I'm not sure where they've got this idea from, unless it's just a pronunciation that's fallen out of use. I've certainly never heard any locals call it Apthorpe, and the tour guides didn't use that pronunciation either, so I shall continue using the local pronunciation of Apethorpe. But is it a palace? (laughs) Officially... Yes, it is now listed as a palace, but it did confuse me to start with when I was looking for ghost stories because it kept throwing up Apethorpe Hall, not palace, because the current owner changed the name from hall to palace to, in his words, regain its deserved place in British history. But the decision did raise a few eyebrows. By definition, a building is called a palace only if it's the official residence of royalty or bishops. And despite frequent visitations by monarchs, it's never officially been a resident of a monarch as such. Well, that's confusing. (laughs) And I didn't know the bishops had palaces either. No, I didn't actually. That was a new one on me. It has, however, been made quite famous from its ownership by and its role in entertaining royalty. Queen Elizabeth I inherited it from her father, Henry VIII, 
and stayed at Apethorpe several times when she went on her summer progress. What exactly is summer progress a euphemism for? (laughs) Well, I didn't know what a summer progress was either. Basically, she lived in London, and in London, it got hot in the summer, and there being no real sort of sewerage (laughs) or any niceties like that, when it got hot, it got pretty whiffy and unpleasant. So she would leave the capital and take her court on a royal progress through the English countryside. Basically, she went on holiday. She'd drop in at stately homes belonging to her noblemen all across the country. This could end up costing the aforementioned noblemen pretty hefty sums of money for the repairs and embellishments required to make suitable accommodations for their queen, as well as the lavish banquets and entertainment they'd be expected to put on. I quite fancy a summer progress, that sounds lovely. Doesn't sound that lovely to me. I get the impression that, you know, she's just leaving a place once it smells. (laughs) Well, fair enough. I can imagine London wasn't very pleasant in the summer. Well, no, but, you know, she's going on a tour of the countryside. I'm going to visit Lord Mount Watson, you know, and then just obviously empty the sewerage outside and it's time to move on now, I think. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, that's a lovely image. (laughs) Moving on. Charles I also stayed at Apethorpe, as did James I. In fact, James I practically moved in. He used Apethorpe as his hunting lodge and built an extension to make it suitable for his princely recreation and commodious entertainment. That does sound fun. Yes. Um, But for me personally, what made it stand out is... It's so intact. It's so complete. We have, we're have we so lucky in England to have so many heritage sites, but a lot of them are quite derelict, um, or if they're not, they still have that sort of museum piece feel about them. You know, you drive up and there's the obligatory car park and gift shop, everything's sort of behind cordons, and there's information plaques everywhere. And I love those places too, but this was just more like the building had popped straight out of Jacobi in England and accidentally landed in the 21st century. You can't just drive up and visit this place. You have to book in advance um, and it's only open during the summer and it's only by guided tour in very small groups. And in fact, when we drove up to the gate, everything was just locked down. (laughs) You couldn't just go in. You had to wait um, to be let in by these tour guides who were sort of like security. They were on their walkie-talkies, letting in one car at a time. It was a bit weird. (laughs) And then you're sort of, you're directed up this driveway um, to park on a bit of gravel tucked out of sight at the back of the building. It was like the, well, it probably was the servant's entrance, and it was so quiet in the estate when you got in there. It just felt like you were sneaking around somebody's house. Um, and we kind of were, really, because it is being lived in, which is why it doesn't feel like a museum piece. It is somebody's home. Um, the palace, or hall, um, was essentially saved from ruin by a French aristocrat called Baron von Fetten, who bought the 48-bedroom manor in November 2014 for £2.5 £2. million, which, when you see the size of this place, is not that much money. I need to interject here, and if any of our listeners are much more au fait with European history than I am, if they can tell me why a French aristocrat is called Baron von Fetten. Yeah, that's a good Because I believe the appellation von is German. Fetten mm-hmm. sounds German. Mm-hmm. You'd have thought if he was a French baron, he would be le baron de, or something. You know, baron of something. Um 
and Fenton, like I say, doesn't sound French. No, but he definitely is. It's an odd one. There's so much confusion around this, around this place. Um, but by all accounts, he took on a huge restoration project, which was why the price tag was possibly lower than you'd expect. The building had no electricity or plumbing when he moved in. But the Baron is apparently intent on restoring it to its former glory, but also making it his family's home. So that does unfortunately mean that you only get to tour some of the estate. But luckily for me, this did include the spookiest part of the building. The first part we went in was a small chapel, and that was pleasant, it had a nice airy feel to it. But as soon as we went upstairs to the Great Hall, this is when I met this dense atmosphere. It was it was similar to what we experienced at Houghton House in Bedfordshire, but it was even thicker than that. It really did make me feel quite ill, and I wasn't expecting it. I felt sick and dizzy, it was really heavy. I was I was really quite uncomfortable and it just sort of seemed to come out of nowhere. So it was just literally as you were walking into the room that was like walking through a wall of something that... Yeah, it just sort of, you walked into it. It just hit you as you entered the the doorway almost. And was there anything about the room itself that was creepy or had your research pulled up anything that might have sort of preempted you to be on guard for this room? Or? Yeah, I know what you mean, but no. Um, my research, really, it, it's quite positive. The ghost stories that are there are of a very peaceful spirit, a very positive, peaceful spirit. The room was light and airy. It had windows all down one side of it, which let in a lot of light. Um, there wasn't a lot of furniture in the room. It's like a big oak table, big, huge um, oak table and an ornate fireplace with a couple of portraits either side of it. Um, other than that, it was quite bare, but it was light, airy, the nothing sinister. The walls weren't baby blue, were the they? The walls weren't baby blue, no. <laughs> That's going to stick in my mind now. Um, but as I was standing there, I was, I've was i got to say, I was zoning out a little bit because I'm not keen on guided tours, generally. I prefer to wander around these places on my own, so I was a little zoned out listening to it. But as I was sort of staring off to the corner of the room, I just saw this weird, like a light... I want to say, just cross diagonally across the corner of the room. Um, and I sort of looked straight over and there was just nothing there. I'm trying to think how to describe it. It's almost like um, passing car headlights in a darkened room. You know how they, the sort of the light refracts and it just passes across a wall? Yeah. But this was in the sort of in air. It wasn't light reflecting on a wall. It was like... Um, a, like shape. a sort of hologram or something. Yeah, just like that, actually. Um, sort of something reflected on empty air. It was ever so strange. It was just a white shape that passed from one corner of a room to the other um, in front of a portrait, which I actually asked about later because I sort of, my brain made the connection, you know, maybe it's something to do with the portrait. But unfortunately, they didn't know who the portrait was of. It was um, a lady in like a rough collar, hmm. but it would obviously just come with the house and they didn't know who it belonged to. There was no there was no markings on it. I mean, nobody else seemed to be disturbed by it. It could have just been a weird trick of the light. Um, it was we were on the second floor, so anything passing in the drive below wouldn't have come in those windows. Yeah. Um, if it was the sunlight, I would imagine that 
it would be more a case of a shaft of sunlight projected on the wall and then something blocking it out rather than something coming yeah, if in. It's trees or something, they tend to flicker rather than exactly. move. And this was a very clear movement from one side to the other. So it was just it was just a bit strange and unexplained. If it asks for Obi-Wan Kenobi, we're going back. <laughs> I hadn't made that connection yet. <laughs> That's a lovely image. So we moved on into the next room. Um and the, the atmosphere was still quite bad in there as well. It was like a sitting room, sort of parlour area. And at this point, it was really starting to get to me. I was feeling quite poorly and thinking that I might actually have to go out. It was that It was that bad. Um, but fortunately, when we moved into the next room, it just completely vanished. And I was able to carry on with the tour because I really was thinking I was going to have to stop. Um, and we put, the next room we went into was the king's bedroom. And th- the atmosphere just completely lifted. You see, it's a shame, again, that it was a guided tour because yeah. I'd be interested to know if after sort of 10, 15 minutes and you'd gathered yourself, yep. whether if you'd gone back in, you'd have felt the same thing. Exactly. And this is why I don't like guided tours. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons. But yes, I would have done exactly that, as we did with Houghton House. You know, we tried different areas and then went back into them and felt the same mm-hmm. things and that verified it. And you can't do that on a guided tour, which is really unfortunate, but... All I can say was it was very sudden. It was a very sudden lifting, literally, between the space of the doorway, Mm. the atmosphere lifted, which is strange. But, you know, I can't substantiate it, unfortunately. So was that the only place in the building that you felt things were really oppressive? Yeah, that was part of what was so odd about it. The rest of the building was really light atmosphere. Um, We went into the conservatory and then the long gallery where James liked to throw parties. And it was just a lovely sort of warm, welcoming atmosphere. Um, Yeah, just from the King's Room onwards, absolutely fine. Now, you were saying that there were renovations going on in the building by Mm. the new owner. Um, Is it possible that that was what kicked off your feelings about the Great Hall? Well, it could be. I mean, we do hear so much that restoration works, kick up some activity. And like I said, there's not a history of any negative feelings there, but the renovations that have done are quite extensive and they've uncovered a lot of things. Um, Between the 50s and the 80s, Apethorpe Palace was actually used as a Catholic boys' school. So during the renovations, they found some of the boys' belongings under the floorboards that they sort of tucked (laughs) away, comics and letters from home and things like that. Um, And actually, in the King James bedchamber, they removed some modern plaster from the walls and they found a secret doorway. Oh, is that like um, a priest hole or something or an escape route? Not quite. It went to the Duke of Buckingham's bedchamber. Oh. (laughs) And rather sweetly, there's a a grand marble fireplace in King James' bedroom. It's all carved and it's got cherubs. And one of the cherubs is slightly peculiar looking and has a moustache. But apparently it is the very image of the Duke of Buckingham. Isn't that lovely? How sweet. I know. So it's obviously a place that King James enjoyed being. Is he one of the ghosts that's said to, to haunt the place? Actually, no. Um, the peaceful spirit that haunts Apethorpe is widely believed to be that of Lady Grace Mildmay. Grace Mildmay was an extraordinary woman by all accounts. She moved to Apethorpe in 1567 when she married Sir Anthony Mildmay. It seems to have been an arranged marriage and not necessarily a happy one. Sir Anthony spent a lot of his time away in court, but Grace poured her energy into developing herbal remedies and dispensing health cures, with which it seems she had a great deal of success. 
Growing up, Grace was educated at home by a governess. She learned the different branches of housewifery, such as music, needlework, arithmetic, letter writing, and some basic medical knowledge, including surgery. Wow. (laughs) I know. Not usually on the list of basic housewifery, but there you go. Using this medical knowledge, she made it her duty to tend to the poor and sick and dispense her medicines and advice for free, and on a large scale, apparently in batches of 10 gallons at a time. That's a lot. Um, And these were complex remedies as well. One balm apparently contained 159 different seeds, roots, spices and gums. Wow. Have we got any idea if these were effective? Well, they're currently, the tour guide actually mentioned that they're being looked at again because they were so well known to be effective. That's awesome. And we still have her medical papers. Um, I think her daughter inherited them. There were 2,000 of them. And they were not just collections of recipes, but descriptions of the causes of diseases and medical instructions. It's amazing that a a lady of the time would not only have been brought up with sort of surgical skills and all this medical knowledge, but I mean, she obviously made a career out of it. It's just fantastic. And it's a bit odd that in that age that, you know, you hear a lot about sort of local midwives and herbalists Mm -hmm. being, you know, She's a witch burner. Yeah, I mean, this is the 1600s. And, um, you know, she, I think she must have had an extraordinary amount of respect and good local standing to have not been, well, suspected of being a witch, basically, as awful as that sounds. Yeah, and it's, it was it that, or is it the fact that she was sort of taking detailed notes, uh, you know, to make it, you know, it's not witchcraft, I'm using this, this and this because they do that, or... I don't know, um, but I mean, it's not really surprising that she was so loved locally, bearing in mind she was she was treating all her um, tenants for free and dispensing cures on such a grand scale. And she became very famous for her charity, which is understandable. One of the reports of paranormal activity at Apethorpe is that occupants frequently find silver pennies that seem to appear out of nowhere. And this is even up to quite recent times as well. And this has been attributed to Grace because she was so famed for her charity. She sounds like an amazing woman. She does, doesn't she? So is it just these activities or has she been seen? She has been seen. As it turns out, um, during the time of as a Catholic boys' school, one of the boys actually encountered the apparition of Grace. As he passed by the Great Hall on his way to the washroom, he said she whooshed right through him. Which is, oh, a bit chilling. And that being where you saw your light thing? Yes, but I ha- I did not know that at the time. Oh, so this is research you did after you'd been? Well, you say research. This is what happens when I take my intrepid mum <laughs> on paranormal postcards adventures. While I was busy taking photographs at the end of the tour, she was busy interrogating the tour guide. Awesome. <laughs> I know. We really should put her on the payroll, if only we had one. (laughs) And it wasn't just the boy, there was a caretaker there as well. George Kelly is said to have had several encounters with the resident ghost, and I think that included finding the pennies as well. And he was convinced that it was Lady Mildmay. He's an interesting character as well. He was employed as a caretaker during Apethorpe's time as a boys' school. But even after the school closed, and despite his wages being stopped, he stayed on at the house taming the gardens and chasing off vandals and plugging up leaks for years and years and was awarded an MBE for his efforts. 
It's, we were talking earlier about this case of um, buildings like sucking people in mm. and having some strange kind of hold on them, like with Andrew's story. I just wonder whether that was a similar situation. I mean, why would you stay when you, you know, you've lost your job, you're not being paid? And he must have cared so much about that house to continue what, all on his own as well, single-handedly. Yeah, it's weird. It's the building seems to encourage charity and selflessness it does that's really interesting actually given the resident ghost yeah and it's also odd that there is so much of that considering the sort of overwhelming feeling that he had of unpleasantness there exactly it seems like everything is is nice and that is why it clashed so much for me and really really stood out as such an odd occurrence because Everything I knew, although I didn't know about the sightings of Grace, I knew that the legend was that the ghost was this charitable, peaceful spirit. So, of course, I wasn't expecting anything negative feeling. And mm. it makes me wonder, is was it a negative feeling or was it just a reaction to a change in atmosphere? And then it makes me wonder how many stories of people that think they've encountered something they've classed as negative, was it negative? Really? Or is that just how they felt it? It's We could go down a rabbit hole on this. <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, I must admit, it's interesting you say that because um, it just for the top of the head, it reminded me of a story I heard of somebody that was deaf and they had a cochlear implant and they just couldn't get used to it. They had to turn it off because yeah, the, I, yeah. they just couldn't, you know, the, their brain couldn't interpret sound and it was just a sort of cacophony of noise to them. Yeah. I hear that a lot with um, people with hearing aids as well. That happens. Um, They just can't accept, like you say, the cacophony of noise. It's too much. It's overwhelming. Mm. Even though it's a positive thing, it's just it clashes too much with them that they can sort of bear it somehow. So you wonder if the feeling, like you say, the feeling you had, it's not necessarily negative. It's just your body can't interpret it in a way that makes sense. So it kind of feels unpleasant. Yeah, that's mm, that's an interesting premise. Um, the other thing I liked about this was you hear so many stories, um, haunted places in Britain, a lot of them have had sort of royal visits. And sometimes that's just the, a royal passing by on a horse. <laughs> but nevertheless, these places always seem to be haunted <laughs> by the ghosts of these royals, I suppose, because they're the best known. It's a bit of a claim to fame and it always makes me chuckle a little bit because, I mean, really, how many places can Anne Boleyn haunt? I think she's meant to haunt <laughs> about 12 places in Britain and I don't think she can be at them all. So, I don't know, I, I really like the fact that there have been so many kings and queens at this place, but it wasn't one of them um, that was that is known to haunt this place. It was actually a really extraordinary woman, you know, a, a really positive figurehead for this community. Um, and her character has stood the test of time so well. Well, haunting or no, it's certainly nice to hear that Lady Grace is being remembered. It really is. Um, But just for the last rather grim but fascinating tale related to Apethorpe, I do have to go back to our kings and queens just for a minute because it is told that it was at Apethorpe that Queen Elizabeth signed the death warrant for Mary Queen of Scots. And while this seems to be the stuff of legend in itself, it probably stems from the fact that Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth's spymaster, stayed the night at Apethorpe carrying the death warrant before continuing to nearby Fotheringhay to deliver it. And it was at Fotheringhay, which is just a few miles down the road, 
that Mary, Queen of Scots, was beheaded in 1587. So, like you say, another one of those that somebody passed within spitting distance yes. and was tied to them. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm afraid that's about all we've got time for this episode. Please don't forget to send in your stories to us at notonceVS.com. And you can also keep up to date with us on social media and come and chat to us in our Facebook group and we will leave a link in the description. And we hope you'll join us next time for our Halloween episode. Easy peace, I shouldn't end.